Hey, I'm Allison Hare, and welcome to Little Left of Center, the podcast that interviews culture changers that are reshaping our world and breaking new ground. Today's guest on Little Left of Center is Chow Nguyen. She is a former award-winning news reporter who transitioned her compassion into action as the chief public strategies officer of the Houston Area Women's Center. Her job is literally to change culture, to support survivors of domestic and sexual violence. And in the age of Me Too, women are rising up, and I thought it was important to understand what defines abuse how to get help if you're in it or know of someone in an abusive situation, and how you can be part of the solution. Take a listen. Oh, well, thank you so, so, so much for for doing this. I'm so glad to reconnect with you. And I'm so interested because, you know, when we met, you were obviously a news reporter, and me and Denise and Lisa would turn on the news, <laughs> and we you'd be reporting on death or murder or something, and we'd be like, oh, she's so cute. She's so oh. cute. <laughs> she's so good. And I don't know how you went from the news to this. So, you know, people ask me that all the time, Allison, and it's actually, for me, it's it seems to make sense. So if you think about being a news reporter, you cover crime, you cover devastation, you meet people at their most vulnerable, tragic moments, mostly, right? It's very rare that I would show up and it would be a happy scene. It was usually a very sad scene. And so through those years, I felt like I was a social worker in progress, you know, meeting people where they're at, seeing if I could help in a small way and feeling like in some ways I was helpless to help them. The best I could do is maybe share their story in hopes that somebody could help, uh, you know, a family who lost everything in a fire, for example. So over those years, I felt like I sort of gained that greater sense of compassion. And then when it was time for me to just take a turn and, and step away from television news, I really had to think long and hard, what, what do I love most? And I, what I really appreciated most was a sense of connection with people and a sense of, of, of service. So going back and getting my master's in social work was the natural path to me. It seemed to make sense. And so through that, I was able to get my master's in social work, practice some counseling and psychotherapy for a while, and then kind of fell into the nonprofit management space, which is where I'm at now. And, you know, the things that I feel very passionate and committed to most are children, refugee issues, and women. So now I support, through my work here, survivors of domestic and sexual violence. And you know, it's interesting with the political climate and, and sort of the news that's trending. It just seems to be, I just, I feel like I'm in the right place to really share this miss- mission and this message and, and hope that, you know, that we, we create a movement towards ending violence. And I'm wondering with your background being a Vietnamese American, did you feel like your heart went out to refugees, to people that were you know, maybe marginalized in a way. I'm wondering if there was a correlation there. If it's something that you related to or were drawn to. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this goes back even before the crisis at the border and, and you know, the, the crisis in Syria. Every time I see a refugee, and I think many refugees, because I am, and, and many of my friends, Vietnamese are, um, how can you not feel a sense of identification with those mothers coming to a new country, not knowing the language, really here to 
do whatever they can for their children. Uh, what's going on on the border is just plain awful and despicable, in my opinion. And I think that every human deserves a chance at dignity and, and an opportunity for a better life. So anyways, I'll leave it at that because I can get on my soapbox. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really tough situation because from my perspective, I'm assuming it's from your perspective, it's a very humanistic approach that seems to be largely ignored and yep. normalized. And I don't understand how. And, you know, the same thing. I mean, you've been working with survivors of domestic abuse and displaced women for you know, the better part of six years. And in the age of Me Too movement, how has the support changed for survivors? How have you seen, you've kind of been through before and after, or at least it is occurring, it's happening now. So what does that look like for you? So for the last few years, this whole resurgence in the Me Too movement is something that this agency where I work has been screaming for four decades, which is believe survivors, support them where they are. So for us, this is kind of poetic justice, right? To be able to say, yes, this is what we've been trying to make aware to our greater community, to say that we support and believe survivors, um, and that we're there for them, you know, regardless of a police prosecution or, you know, a district attorney, criminal investigation, many survivors don't even come forward. They say like maybe less than 10% of sexual assault survivors even come forward because of the shame and the stigma and not being believed. So do you feel um, like yeah. that's increased since then? Do you feel like people have been more courageous to come out or feel like it's more safe or they can find some kind of retribution by coming out after me you too? Know, or what have you seen? You know, I think with our clients, um, what we always at an agency like ours, we we're very client-centered. So really, it's up to the clients to decide what they want to do with their self-determination, right? What we see is they are coming here for support, whether or not they come to the police or not. Many of them choose not to because the criminal court process is difficult mm. and it's arduous. And likely, you know, the prosecution and the persecution of abusers might be a light punishment. So... Whether or not Me Too has given rise to more survivors having the courage to speak out, um, I think that's really an individual case-by-case -case client basis, but at least they know that they can be heard and their voice can be believed here at you know community-based organizations like ours. So congratulations on being promoted to Chief Public Strategies Officer. <laughs> Am I getting that right? So that what, is right. What does that mean? Who do you serve? Do you serve the the women that are at the Houston Area Women's Center? Do you support? Do you do you lobby? Is your role to change laws, or who do you who are you serving? So, in the Public Strategies Division, our task is our end goal in sight is culture change, and what that looks like is how do we as one community-based organization in a huge city of Houston help to reduce interpersonal violence? Well, we do that, we believe, with a lot of help from others. We cannot do this work alone, nor can other community-based organizations around the country uh, be tasked to end violence or reduce violence on its own. What we're tasked to do is we believe that systems, institutions, we all work together. 
We all respond to support survivors. We do it in a trauma-informed way. We hold perpetrators accountable. And we look at the big public strategy. You know, we look at it through thought leadership, through research, through advocacy in the legislator legislature, through community mobilization efforts, like engaging our young leaders and volunteers. I mean, we're all in it. Violence is a public health crisis. It's an issue that is pervasive in any community, regardless of your race, your class, your demographic. So um, that's what that's what public strategies looks like for us. It looks like a bigger picture culture change, because at the end of the day, you know, what we do is support services. We support survivors. We empower them. We respond to them in a crisis, trauma-informed way. And we can do that all day long. Open the doors, they will come. We have a 120-bed shelter. It's full every night. 70 wow. women, 50 kids every night, right? We have counseling programs. We counsel thousands a year. We touch thousands a year. But when we look at prevention, awareness, education efforts, that's where we think we can move the needle. And that's where public strategies and this whole notion of changing culture, changing the way people behave, telling them about healthy relationships, doing it early in the schools, in communities, with professionals, uh, with our youth. Those are important things for us. It's almost like a ground approach in every mm -hmm. single direction. And I'm wondering, you know, for people who are listening, and maybe they're in situations where they might be in abusive relationship, but mm -hmm. they're not sure, what does mm -hmm. abuse look like? What classifies as abuse? You know, abuse comes in many forms, physical, psychological, spiritual, financial. What we know is financial abuse and having children are the number one barriers for survivors to decide not to leave. What is financial uh, abuse? Taking away, you know, your credit cards, mm. being in control of the money, having children and not feeling like you have a way out of that relationship. What we try to do is we always offer uh, support to people who might be wondering, and that's through our hotlines. We have a 24-7 hotline. Um, and we field about 40,000 calls a year, if that gives you an idea, in the city of Houston. Wow. And that's just one city, right? Um, and we arm them with information about, you know, sort of this, the, the dynamics of abuse. Where at the heart of it, you're looking at power and control, uh, whether it be physical or sexual violence, emotional abuse, isolation, blaming, threats, economic, sexual abuse. You know, I mean, having privilege, using the children, electronic aggression, you know, taking your phone away, looking at your phone, stalking. There are so many forms of abuse. And at the heart of it, it is about power and control over somebody else. So one of the things that I know is that when you're trying to make a change, you have to be more organized than outraged. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, like, e even as you talked about, you know, some of these scenarios, and I'm, I'm feeling tense, like, oh, that would make me so mad if somebody did that to me, you know, and you, you have, you clearly have a voice that can be used to help these women. How do you teach women who've had so much taken from them to use their own voice and that it matters? You know, I, I think a lot of times just offering support and letting a survivor know that you're there to listen and to listen without judgment and to respond and to refer them to hotlines, to organizations like ours, can be very empowering so that they know about all these services and that there is a way out. 
But at the end of the day, you know, the choice has to be to the survivor. What we know is it takes seven to eight times before a survivor decides to leave his or her perpetrator or abuser. Seven to eight times. And typically, all those things I talked about before, economic abuse, electronic aggression, using the children, physical, verbal, spiritual, all those things are barriers to leaving. Financial abuse and financial, uh, you know, disempowerment is usually the number one reason, which is simply said, I don't have the money. I don't have the means to leave this relationship. What do I do? Well, there are ways out. You know, there is help available. I talk about this a lot, but have you seen Mm -hmm. the documentary, The Mask You Live In? No. Oh my God, Chow. (laughs) You have to see this. I'd be so curious to learn your perspective on this, especially given what you do. So The Mask You Live In is a documentary. It was an executive produced by Maria Shriver. And it is specifically around toxic masculinity on how boys are socialized to be a man to, you know, not cry to not be a pussy to they're taught at a very, very young age to not throw like a girl to not act like a girl, you know, where, where by nature, you are automatically putting a hierarchy by using those words that we hear all the time. I heard that where it is automatically putting a man above a woman, even though they may be taught otherwise, their words, their actions are taught differently. And so it kind of takes this, it it is a life-changing documentary. I know for us, you know, we're raising a six-year-old boy and it Mm -hmm. changed everything with how we raise him to make sure that we are more intentional. And I think even more importantly, that you're conditioned, you're socialized to act a certain way to, and, and what happens and what they find is that when boys grow up, And they're socialized to, you know, act a certain way or be a man and all of those things is that they're not offered the opportunity to express themselves fully because they're never taught that it's okay. And it's okay to be in your feelings. It's okay to not have to man up, right? Right. It's not okay. And so often it it manifests itself as aggression and violence when they grow up. And I'd be so curious to learn your perspective, given the the very specific niche, not niche that you're in, but, you know, these women that are are really the 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 victims of people that may have been conditioned that way. How do you teach on that? How do you educate on it? You know, we have um, and that's the exciting part about running a division whose task it is to create culture change in our community. We actually have a thriving and healthy violence prevention, awareness, and education outreach uh, division department in our agency. And that team is tasked with talking about issues of toxic masculinity, about healthy behavior, about teen dating violence in our communities. We're in the schools. We're talking to professionals. We're reviewing sexual assault uh, policies, sexual harassment policies in companies. I mean, I think that that's that's where you have to start, right? You got to start with children. You got to go to these communities. You got to talk to professionals. You, we talk to, you know, our faith-based communities as well to talk about healthy relationships. Because at the end of the day, it really comes down to it starts with maybe an individual relationship to another relationship, but it can also be shared in a larger context. 
I think that part is so important. And I wonder about, you know, I think the whole Me Too, yeah, I think there is in some ways an overcorrection where people are way, 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 way sensitive to any mm-hmm. infraction. And I would imagine that there are probably men that would hear of these stories and say, oh, shit, I did that, but didn't realize. You know what I mean? It wasn't that mm-hmm. they were being obviously offensive. And right. trying to, you know, perpetrate trading. I don't know that there was a line drawn in the sand until it is become very, very apparent now. And part of that is the education. So I'm glad to hear that you guys have an outreach for it. This morning, I was watching Amanda Wynn's TED Talk. So Amanda yes. Wynn. Yes, a well-known sexual abuse survivor and lobbyist for women's rights for domestic abuse. She was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. And for me, I had suffered from sexual assault as a teenager. And when I hear about people as victims, like for me, a visceral rush goes through my body and I can literally feel my whole body get red hot when I hear of someone else being attacked or being or suffering or or being dismissed. And I want to help, you know, specifically with mental health. What are some ways I can make a positive impact? You know, there are so many ways. I think speaking out, supporting a survivor where she is or he is in their their place of healing is a wonderful opportunity. Obviously, there's community-based organizations like ours all across the country where you can volunteer, where you can advocate, where you can stay on top of policy issues that surround cases of sexual violence or domestic violence. I, I think the fact that we are in a place in our country, in our culture right now, that that these issues are being put to the forefront, cases like Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein, it gives us an opportunity to talk about these very difficult issues because sexual assault is so pervasive. One in three women has experienced some form of sexual violence in in her life, that's pretty high statistic, right? And sexual violence is a spectrum, right? It's a spectrum. It goes anywhere from being violated to, you know, my child was at a store with me and there was a flasher and she's six. And I thought to myself, she is now officially a victim of sexual violence Mm. because she had to watch a man flash her at age six. So, you know, these are the, the, the very important things we just have to talk about and spread awareness and education and campaigns and stay on top of the things that are happening in our community. You know, you're raising two young girls as a single mom. And how has this work shaped the way you parent them? I just, I, I think communicating with your children, let, especially as young as they are, like yours, you know, talking about their bodies being their bodies, sharing with them that it's okay to share a secret if it's not with mommy, to find like a mommy's best friend. With my children, I've said that, look, you can tell me anything, but if you don't want to and you think you're going to get in trouble, then you go tell your Aunt Lily and you're not going to get in trouble. Ooh, that's a good one. I've never heard of that one. Yeah. And then I think normalizing words like vagina and penis, it's okay. We don't have to taboo our private parts. So you're not a big you fan know? of wee-wee and, and hoo-ha no. and no, exactly. cha <laughs> It's okay to say this is her vagina and this is his penis. And that's how we speak about it, right? And we speak about healthy behavior. And, you know, I, I'm very much a feminist in my household. I run a pretty 
active <laughs> feminist single mom with three girls in our house and we are um you know and working here probably augments it but um yeah i just i i just it's constant communication and it's empowering them to have a voice and to speak out and share injustices and at the end of the day be kind and compassionate to others do they know no and understand what, what you do you know it's interesting you say that alice and at some point they need to what I have told them, I've worked here for three and a half years, is sometimes, you know, people do bad things to women and children because we serve mostly women, children and men sometimes, right? We have counseling services for men as well and that they need a place for help. And so, um, so that's kind of at the extent, but as they get older, I'm sure they'll learn more, but that's, that's what we do. I don't know if they understand what a social worker is quite yet, but they know it's, <laughs> it's a profession of helping because they see me at the computer a lot as well. Too. So they're like, well, how do you help when you're behind a computer? I'm like, well, you know, we do have computer work to do. <laughs> and, and based on your experience and what you've seen, what do you see and what is the common denominator of abusers? Power and control, that is at the heart of it. Somebody wielding their power and control over somebody else. And 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 and, and that's at the heart of what violence is. I heard, I have a friend of mine who is also a social worker and a counselor and she works especially with victims of, of domestic mm -hmm. abuse and child abuse. Mm -hmm. And she, she said that nine times out of 10, the abusers have been abused themselves. Do you find that to be true? So trauma plays a role in almost anything that happens, right? So I don't know if I know that statistic. Clearly, I do know that, you know, we don't treat abusers. We treat survivors here. Right. What we do know is there's a lot of trauma. Trauma is just complicated, right? Survivors have their own trauma dealing with abuse, but there might be complicated, you know, it, it, it's sort of the new generation of domestic violence survivors aren't like, what we saw in the 70s at the turn of the women's movement where, you know, women were just fleeing bad husbands, right? Abusive husbands. Now we have complexities like mental illness, addiction, right? So trauma can be very complicated. On the perpetrator or the abuser's side, I, I can't speak to that. That's not who we support here. Where do they get help? Where do abusers get help? So we're, there are agencies that serve abusers. There's something mm. called the Battery Intervention Program. Um, here in the state of Texas, that is sanctioned by the state. So if you're an abuser and you go to court, uh, typically you'll have to enter a batter intervention program. It's a prevention program. We, they, they call it BIP here in the state of Texas. So there are programs here in the Houston area that serve perpetrators. They have to go to counseling. They have to go to group, those kinds of things. And what is some advice that you can give for those people who might be in an abusive situation. You know what? Just to know that it's never your fault, that we believe you, that you're not alone. That's kind of the message we send here. You know, because a lot of survivors come and they second guess themselves. Well, maybe I shouldn't have done this. If I'd done this, then this wouldn't have happened. No, it's never your fault. You never deserve what happened to you. And we're here to help. We're just, we believe you. We're just going to be here where you are. Oh, that's so amazing. And how, how do you find hope? Like, how do you find hope when it keeps, I mean, this is your job. So you see this day <laughs> in and day out, and it, it may skew your view, right? Uh, yeah. A little bit of how do you find a place of hope? Where is progress? Well, I will tell you, when you see the transformation of survivors' lives, Tell me. And you see that they can, you know, we, we just had a graduation. We have a financial empowerment program. We just 
um, had with a, a grant that we um, were given with a, a number of survivors. It's a match program where, you know, they save money and then the grant matches what they save so they can have that financial empowerment, right? Because that's the number one barrier to leaving. I don't have enough money. I can't afford it. And you hear these incredible stories of, I didn't know that I had an option. I called the hotline and here I am months later. I saved my money. I learned about financial, this program. You know, I saved my money. I have my match today. You know, I'm living in an apartment. I'm free. I'm free. I don't have to live in the chains of abuse and control of my perpetrator. Those are amazing stories. And we have many of those. And, uh, And even in the sexual assault programs that we provide, these stories of these survivors who've undergone unbelievable, indescribable assaults to be able to see them as part of their healing journey here as part of their healing journey to see that they're okay, that they're worthy, that it's not their fault, that they can live productive, meaningful lives devoid of that trauma. They, they don't have to be identified that, that by that. That's amazing. That's life changing. That to me, you know, if you can save one survivor at a time, that's rewarding. Oh, that's got to feel unbelievably amazing and gratifying. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. like, that's life, right? That's the the marrow of life. <laughs> it is. Is, is it that is. transformation. You know, yeah. what, do you, what do you know that you wish other people knew in this arena? I, I just hope that people just believe survivors where they're at. I, I think that, it, oh, you know, our message this it's year is so has, frustrating. It's, it's so just belief. Frustrating. I would imagine that if I were an abuse survivor or somebody that was in an abusive situation, that the thought of not being believed, the thought of having to relive trauma every day to try and prove, you know, like, you know, your body is evidence to prove and still feel like you're guilty. I mean, is there hope? Are are the laws changing where they're more forgiving, where they are believing? You know, I know the whole rape kit as an expiration, you know, of, of, of evidence that, you know, no longer is viable unless they continually fight for it. It, It's, it's a lot of work, you know, aside from the, the emotional healing and the physical healing of, of getting out of a situation that having to deal with that is like getting beat up all, all over again. And, and here's the thing, it doesn't help. You know, one of the things that frustrates me so much is I hear these conversations and you might've been in these conversations like, why didn't you just leave him? He's such an mm-hmm. asshole. Why don't you just mm-hmm. leave? It's so easy. No, it's not easy. Love is a complicated thing, period, right? It's complicated. Just because you're a survivor doesn't mean you don't, you don't love your abuser. You don't love your spouse. You don't love this father of your children. It's complicated. They have to feel empowered and supported enough to decide for themselves that they want to leave. So for us as an agency, you know, our mantra this year is to believe survivors, believe where they're at, support them. Is and that happening more? To, is that I happening so. more in the courts? I, I hope so. Yes. Well, in the courts, I, you know, the courts is a difficult process. You've got things like evidence. You know, you've got testimony. Um, it's not our place to tell survivors. They have to choose whether or not they want to take it before the courts. Yeah. Mm. 
how can people get involved with your mission? What if somebody is in Houston or in their own local city? What are great ways to get involved or how can they contribute? You know, I think you just find your local rape crisis center, your local domestic violence agency, and there's websites. And I, I will tell you, there's always a healthy volunteer program. We have volunteers who volunteer on our hotlines. We have a healthy 24-7 hotline program in which we not only um, hire advocates, but we train volunteers. Uh, we have a young leaders program. The young professionals get together and they do a lot of advocacy and fun events. It's always a great way to get involved. And I think just staying on top of, you know, sort of the legislative policy efforts, that's always a great way. And in college, I think there are Title IX programs all around the country uh, is a great way to stay connected and, and get involved in certain groups, right, in college, with young professionals, uh, in your communities. What is Title IX? It's, it's a law in the college programs that require colleges to report cases of sexual mm, assault okay. in, on college campuses. You are doing such deep and meaningful work. You are, I appreciate it. You are a culture changer. How can people reach you? Oh, you're so funny. I'm always available. I'm at C Nguyen at hawk.org, H-A-W-C.org. That's our website. Please reach out to me. I know that you've got uh, listeners from all over the country, but you know we stay connected to our state and national advocacy organizations. Um, our state is the Texas Council on Family Violence. The national organization with which we are connected is the National Network to End Domestic Violence. They also have a toll-free hotline number. They have text chat as well. Look, it's a movement. I, you know, and movement building requires everybody. Violence is not going away anytime soon, but maybe, hopefully, we can move the needle and and share this message in, in hopes of a, a sort of an equal and free society. That would be amazing. And what's yeah. what's now? I think you were explaining it before I hit record. But what is next for you? There was something that you were working on. Oh goodness, what is next for me? I <laughs> I'm just here at Public Strategies here at the Houston Area <laughs> Women's Center. We've got a lot of work to do in, in in talking about ending violence. You know, we we get excited about campaigns and messaging and partnerships and and research. So we'll just keep moving along until we, uh, we hopefully move the needle and, and, and make a make an impact in our communities. Well, thank you, Chow. This was awesome. Thank you, Allison. Thanks for listening to my chat with Chow Nguyen. I didn't realize how comprehensive services like Houston Area Women's Center are to help survivors and the people who love them. If you know of someone who might be in an abusive situation or wants to help, please visit the links in the show notes and pass this episode along. Please also consider writing a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I read every word. As always, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.